Let me invite you now, uh, if you have a Bible or access to one, to please open it now to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 2. And today we're going to look at probably one of the most famous sermons, some consider it to be one of the greatest sermons ever preached, uh, particularly because of its place in redemptive history, that it is a sermon that explains really what happened on the day of Pentecost, but goes further to help us understand the significance and weight of that particular event. So if you have your Bibles open to chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we will pick up our reading uh, just for context's sake at verse 12 of chapter 1. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, that is 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all 
who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And would you speak to us now? We are your servants. We are hungry. Feed us. We need your word to correct us, uh, to uh, teach us truth, uh, to provide guidance for us, uh, to enlighten our paths. And we pray that your spirit would be mightily at work through the word, and this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is that. In other words, when Peter begins to explain the miracle of Pentecost, he says this, that is what you're seeing and witnessing, is that the prophecy of Joel. Again, one of the most famous sermons in all of history, the inaugural sermon of the New Covenant, and the results were impressive, 3,000 converts. Dr. Kelly used to tell us all the time that this sermon on the day of Pentecost um, was a model for what is called expository preaching. Expository preaching. And expository preaching is preaching that intends to explain and set forth the meaning of the text. One thing Dr. Kelly used to do in preaching class all the time is when I, we would get up and, you know, we were new preachers, some of us, some of us had preached a while, but he would always remind us, stick to the text. If he said it once, he said it every time somebody preached. No, don't go down that bunny trail. Stick to the text. Preach the Bible. Preach the text. Tell people what it means. It's not a time for creativity. It's a time to preach the text. And so it's a wonderful sermon, and you realize that just 50 days earlier or so, Peter denied Christ three times, one of the greatest denials in all of church history. He was part of the inner, inner three. He had a primacy uh, among the disciples. He was the first one to confess that Christ was the Son of the living God. He was always the first one to put his foot in his mouth, and he's, he was the one who drew the sword first and tried to defend Christ by cutting off the ear of Malchus. And yet, Christ restored him. And he asked Peter if he loved him, and Peter said, Yes, Lord, I do. He told him three times to feed my sheep. That is what he is doing on the day of Pentecost. What a miracle of grace. Now in the Holy Spirit, he preaches probably one of the most fearless, bold sermons to a hostile audience that you possibly could. You remember that this audience is made up of observant Jews who had delivered Christ over to the Romans to do what? To crucify him. And now he stands in boldness, fearless, preaching with power, the Word of God, obviously filled by the Holy Spirit. James Montgomery Boyce and also R.C. Sproul, who quoted Bo Boyce on their works on the Acts of the Apostles, says there are four characteristics of this sermon that ought to be in every sermon. First, this is the first recorded apostolic sermon, and it was biblical throughout. As we go through this, you're going to see that what Peter is doing is weaving a sermon based upon the only scriptures that they had at this time, which was the Old Testament. And so he takes a number of quotations from the Old Testament to support what he's saying in terms of the meaning of Pentecost, and that was what made his message have authority and power. That's what made it compelling because he is using Scripture thoroughly throughout and fundamentally in this sermon. It was an expository sermon. He didn't stand up and give his latest views on public opinion or a psychology lesson 
or how to react to the coronavirus. And he didn't scratch the itches of people by giving them something that was fascinating or giving them a pep talk that could take place in a synagogue, a mosque, in an IBM corporate meeting, and nobody would be offended. No, he preached the Bible. He preached the Word of God, and that is authentic. Second, Peter took people to the person and work of Christ. You're going to see this. His sermon is Christ-filled and Christ-centered. He doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit apart from Jesus. He talks about the Holy Spirit whose major purpose and function is to show us the glory and beauty of Jesus. So this message is Christ-centered. He shows us how to find Christ in the Old Testament. As we look back post the cross, post resurrection, post ascension, now the outpouring of the Spirit, he can look back at the Old Testament and see how it points to Christ. The third thing I think I want you to note is that he preached fearlessly. I've already said that, but this man was bold. When you consider the context, he was very bold. That is why Martin Luther said that in every generation there will be a threat, the threat of the gospel going into eclipse. Every time the gospel is proclaimed clearly and boldly, opposition arises from those within the church as much as those outside of church. I had a good friend who planted a church in Mississippi. I won't name the place because, believe it or not, some people in Mississippi are listening to this today. <laughs> but it was, no, I won't tell you where it was. But he planted a church there, and I said, what did you learn from your five years there as a church planter in this city in Mississippi? He said, I never knew how much people hate the gospel. I said, really? He said, I never knew how much church people hate the gospel. I said, explain that for me. He said, well, they've come up with other ways to be righteous, and once you preach a gospel, it just demolishes all that, and they have nowhere to go. They can either repent or attack you. And he said, they attacked me. And I said, well, that didn't make you anything but tougher than you already were. But that's what happens here. As Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, and then preach with boldness. Fourth, Peter's sermon was exceedingly rational, exceedingly reasonable. He didn't simply uh, uh, play on the emotions of his hearers, but he reasons with them in a rational way. He takes them back to the text and shows them Jesus. He proclaims the truth of the Word of God. So that's why this sermon, in my judgment, is so wonderful. But he's explaining what has happened in verses 1 through 11 in this sermon? That's how he begins, where people, some were amazed by the events and confused and confounded. Others were mocking. And he's saying what you're witnessing, what you are seeing is fulfillment. Fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, what God promised long ago. And also, in more recent times, John the Baptist said Jesus would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus, even further back, to Moses in Jethro. You remember that story where Moses was having trouble meeting with the flock of people he took out from the Exodus, and Jethro, his father-in-law, came to Moses and said, you need to appoint some leaders. You need leadership here. And uh, uh, the Bible tells us in Exodus that the Lord poured out his spirit on these 70 leaders, which saved Moses' life in many ways. And so there's always been a hunger and a um, prophecy that would be fulfilled ultimately in the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And so that was a hope well-rooted in Scripture. And so the real cause, Peter's going to tell us in this sermon, of everything you see happening is the death resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and the significance of Jesus of Nazareth in the plan of God. Again, instead of focusing purely upon the Spirit, he points to the glorified Messiah. The climax of the sermon is where he declares this Jesus whom you have crucified is both Lord and Christ, Messiah, anointed one. And that's what this sermon is all about. Now, given the audience 
a lot of this sermon is rooted in the Old Testament, but they would have understood the Old Testament. As we go through Acts, you're going to see a different style of preaching in each context we get into. For example, you can compare this sermon to the sermon Paul preached on Mars Hill, where he doesn't mention the Old Testament at all, per se, as much as he does contemporary philosophers and poets. So it's interesting to look at the book of Acts. But here we have a Jewish audience and he's going to show them over and over and over again, this is the Lord. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it's wonderful as this sermon is preached, the power of the gospel goes out, it brings results. Isaiah 55 uh, verse 11 tells us for... Uh, as the uh, rain falls upon the earth and, and the sun shines upon the earth and it gives bud to plants and they grow and they prosper, the Lord says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall accomplish my purposes and prosper where I send it. I pray that verse every Sunday, recognizing that there's power in the gospel, in the word of the living God, there is power, which is why you need to be sitting under expository preaching consistently. Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Now, let's look at point number one. I know you th you're, sitting, you're sitting there thinking, there's no way he's going to be able to cover all this ground. I'm going to try. What else have we got to do, right? <laughs> it's Mother's Day, so I will have mercy. First, the gift of the Spirit is a sign of the day of the Lord. Now listen to me for a moment. This concept of the day of the Lord is huge in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord was going to be both a day of restoration and also a day of judgment. It was to be a day in which... The uh, powers of the age to come were to impinge and penetrate the present time. It was a time in which the kingdom of God would be inaugurated on earth. And it was a time in which uh, God would bring judgment. He would pour out his wrath upon those who resisted him and who were obviously hostile toward him. And so this is about the day of the Lord. And so Peter stands up to this Jewish audience, and first he begins with a touch of humor. Maybe that's where this came from. Because when I was first taught to preach, they always said, tell a joke. I said, well, why? I'm not a comedian. And they said, well, just, you know, lighten it up a little bit. Uh, you know, let, let, let go. But Peter doesn't tell a joke as much as he says something that we're so used to, we don't think it's funny, but it might have been at the time. You think these guys are drunk on new wine? It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, I know some people don't respect the clock <laughs> in terms of how they imbibe, but apparently culturally in this place, they did. It was not a usual, normal sight to see men uh, completely inebriated and drunk out of their minds at 9 a.m. in the morning. He says, so what you're witnessing is not a bunch of drunken fools, but what you are witnessing is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is when the Lord will pour out his spirit upon the earth. That's what Joel said in his prophecy. He said, this is that. This is what Joel is talking about. And they knew the prophecy of Joel. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And he said, the pouring out of the Spirit on all people is now being fulfilled. In the Old Testament, the major people who received the Spirit were prophets and leaders and kings. But now there is an inclusive pouring out of the Spirit upon all of those whom the Lord has called out of darkness into his kingdom of light. And so this pouring out of the Spirit literally means a deluge. Now, most people know that when I get in my car, that know me, that are in my family, shall we say, and we're going on a trip, it's rare for me to stop unless I am badgered like 150 times. But somebody's got to do something. But one day I was driving in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and it rained. It had to rain worse than it did during Noah's Ark. It was, <laughs> you could not see that far beyond the windshield. 
and I had windshield wipers going 100 miles an hour, and I'm looking for taillights, and I'm slowing down a little bit because I'm on the interstate, and I can't see, and so I did something I've never done in my life in a rainstorm. I pulled over and stopped under an overpass at the interstate and waited until this deluge went by. But the minute I read about the original language speaking of what happened on Pentecost as a deluge, it made me flash back to Pascagoula, Mississippi. Who knew? But anyway... (laughs) Here's what's happening. God is pouring generously, pouring out His Spirit upon His people in order to see uh, the fulfillment of the day of the Lord. But one thing we need to understand, and this is where so many people, this is helpful for you in understanding the Bible. When there's fulfillment in the Bible, it doesn't always mean that there is utter and complete and total fulfillment. There is a partial fulfillment now. There will be the ultimate fulfillment later. And that ultimate fulfillment will happen in the second coming of Christ when judgment is poured out upon the earth. But here, in the first coming of Christ and his ascension to the right hand, he is pouring out his spirit upon the church so that the church will be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. And so the day of the Lord means that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, and Luke even goes back to the incarnation and birth of Jesus as the beginning or inauguration of the kingdom. We usually see it connected with what Jesus spoke of regarding the cross, especially in his administration of the Lord's Supper in Acts. And so signs happened uh, all over the place. The signs uh, and wonders were happening uh, on the earth and uh, signs like the supernatural birth of Jesus, miraculous activity during the ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, judgment coming later, just as the Spirit is outpoured upon the earth, then the uh, wrath of God will be outpoured upon the earth. And these are signs of nearness to the end. People are always asking me, especially in a time of coronavirus, are these the last days? And I want to I always say, yeah. And they say, well, do you think it's, I mean, the real last days? I say, yeah. I don't usually tell them if I know their background that the last days started at the cross of Christ. <laughs> we are in the last day. We have been in the last days for over 2,000 years. Now, <clears throat> are we closer to the second coming of Jesus? Every minute, yes, we're a minute closer. But does this mean because of the coronavirus that uh, God is pouring out judgment on the earth? If you know anything about the book of Revelation, there is judgment in the whole period between the, the uh, um, ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. There are judgments that fall out upon the earth and they intensify as you get closer to the end. But if you understand the book of Revelation at all, that happens during the whole time. It will be more intense toward the end. But this is what Peter is saying. What you are watching, what you are observing, is the truth of the Word of God. But here, the climax of Joel's oracle is the promise of deliverance from judgment of God for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Salvation is peace. And uh, the rest of the discernment, in uh, a transformed creation, uh, or a new Jerusalem, that's what uh, Joel means by salvation and deliverance. But the rest of the sermon is designed to show that Jesus is Lord. And they are to call on Him as the Messiah. And that calling on Him means submitting to Him, ultimately, as we will see in a moment, in repentance and faith. Jesus is the Lord and Messiah, the one on whom to call for salvation. We are now, if you keep up with such matters, at point number two. And I'm going to shift it into overdrive here as quickly as I possibly can because there's so much here. 
But Jesus is the Lord on whom we call for salvation. He is both Lord and Christ. And so he addresses his audience again in verse 22, and he challenges them to listen to his word. And he begins by announcing the name of his subject, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on to make various claims that will re be repeated with variation all through the book of Acts. The, the samples of apostolic preaching have an important function in Luke's narrative, illustrating how opportunities were taken to testify to the person and work of Christ in a variety of situations. But believe you me, they preached Christ. And it was foundational for their faith and their understanding of the gospel. And so the first concern Peter here has in the next section of point two is the divine attestation to Jesus. As a man from Nazareth, which is the backside of the tracks, Nowheresville, ghetto city, he was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. And it's interesting, Jesus... Uh, had already been accredited as Messiah when he was crucified. But three terms are used here to describe uh, the course of his ministry. There were miracles, that is powers or mighty works, the, signifying the operation of God's power or kingly rule through him. You do understand that the miracles in the Gospels were not just done to help people out of his compassion. Certainly they were done that. But they were also... Um, miracles of power that signified the reality of the kingdom already coming. You'll know the kingdom of God is here by what I have done before you today, casting out demons, etc. And so there were mighty works of God's kingly power, but they were also called wonders because the uh, amazement that fell upon the witnesses, and they were also called signs because they pointed beyond themselves to the character and significance uh, of Jesus and his coming that God did through him. But now, Peter proceeds to identify him specifically as the promised Messiah. And here's the question, and Peter alludes to it in this sermon. If Jesus was so powerfully and publicly accredited by God, then why in the world was he rejected and crucified? That's the question. Any thinking person around at that time would have brought that question up, especially if you were Jewish, especially if you were schooled in the Old Testament. You would have asked the question, that's not a any kind of Messiah I have ever seen or ever expected and how are you uh, how do you get there from here how do you with the evidence that we all know that has happened in this city at this time arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is Lord and that he is the Messiah pretty good question to ask but the apostle goes on to speak of Jesus as actually being handed over by God. The words to you uh, simply says that he was handed over to Israel, but it could just as easily mean that Jesus was handed over or delivered up to death or to the Romans who actually crucified him. Without a doubt, and hear me clearly, this is a truth we need to lay hold of even in these days. Without doubt, the emphasis is on God's sovereignty. And everything that happened, he was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Here we find the first reference in Acts to God's purpose or God's plan. This plan, which had particular reference to the sufferings of the Messiah, was revealed in, uh, in advance in the scriptures. But God's foreknowledge, prognosis here, m means more than his ability to anticipate the future. It is another way of talking about his determination of events. 
in advance. Let me repeat that. When it says that God's own plan, sovereign purposes, foreknowledge in particular, is his determination of events in advance according to his own plan. Jesus came into the world to fulfill certain God-given roles. And those associated with them had their own roles to play in the drama of redemption. Despite this emphasis on God's sovereignty, there is absolutely no diminution or playing down of human responsibility here. Peter acknowledges that the betrayal and death of Jesus took place with the help of wicked men by the hand of lawless ones, apparently identifying Roman authorities as those who lacked the privilege of the law. Judas Iscariot, together with the Jewish and Roman leaders, all had a part to play. But Peter lays particular responsibility for the suffering of Jesus at the feet of the Jews in Jerusalem. He says this, You fixed him to the cross. You nailed him to the tree. They disowned Jesus, handed him over to secular authorities who actually crucified him. And so the crucifixion of Jesus was far from the end of the matter. Continuing the emphasis on God's sovereignty, the third point in Peter's message is this. God raised him from the dead. And so the contrast between God's exaltation of Jesus and the attitude of those who opposed him is a central aspect of the kind of preaching we're going to see in the book of Acts. Jesus' resurrection was the ultimate accreditation and vindication of Jesus as God's servant and Messiah. And the latter points, points out emphatically as Peter begins to demonstrate the fulfillment of David's words. When it is claimed that God freed Jesus from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, a word is used here that is normally applied to the agony of childbirth, that is, birth pangs. The whole expression and the metaphor in which death is regarded as being in labor and unable to hold back its child. That's interesting to me. It's just like you're, you're born into this world through labor, you die and enter the next uh, phase of life outside of the body through labor. But the implication is that Jesus was rector, resurrected because he was already the Messiah, not that he became the Messiah through the resurrection. And so as verses 25 to 28 tell us, as the prophecy of Joel was used to interpret and explain the gift of the Spirit in verses 16 to 21, so now a second Old Testament citation is drawn into Peter's argument, and that is from the Psalter. He uses Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and it's not quoted to prove the resurrection as a historical event. The apostles have presented themselves in that way in particular, but to show how the resurrection testifies to Jesus' Messiahship. He's arguing with these Jews, this is the Messiah. We go back and we look at the Psalms of David and they testify to this reality. And I'm going to kind of cut this short so we can move toward the end. You can study this on your own time and you can have a ball. But what are the elements in Psalm 16 that lead us to the understanding that it is about the resurrection of Jesus? In what sense could David have spoken about him? And so he answers that question. When he says, the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, it is sufficient proof for Peter to say that Psalm 16 speaks about something beyond David's personal experience. Bodily resurrection is a key issue because of the expression, you will not let your Holy One see decay. If David's own body had been raised, his grave would have been uh, uh, disturbed or would no longer be present. But the fact then would have been assumed that David was a prophet. But Jesus himself suggested that David was a prophet when he gave a messianic interpretation of Psalm 110. 
So here what we're trying to get across to you is he is Messiah because he is the successor, the Davidite, the Davidic king. Now you know after the exile there were no more of the line of David upon the throne in Israel. And the anticipation is that Messiah would sit upon the throne. But here Peter is saying the thing that qualifies Jesus as Messiah is he fulfilled what David was anticipating about the Holy One not seeing any corruption. And so the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ proves what? From Psalm 16 and later Psalm 110 that Jesus is the Messiah. He will turn next and use the pattern for us uh, on a different song. But he's saying the disciples and the apostles had seen the empty tomb and they had many convincing proofs that Jesus was alive. They were convinced that Jesus, unlike David, had been raised immediately from death, never to experience decay. By implication, then, he is the Messiah. That declaration is held over into the dramatic climax of the message in verse 36. Now, He's the Savior King of David's line who reigns over God's people forever, bringing the blessings of forgiveness and peace with God. As the one appointed to be judge of the living and dead, he offers salvation and a share in his resurrection to all nations. But the fourth point that Jesus, Peter makes in this sermon is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And he makes much to do with David's phrase, uh, the Lord said... Uh, how did he say it? Yeah. Where he talks about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And so, here David refers to a proclamation in reality of Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And so the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, David says, indicates that not only did Jesus come, not only did he die, not only was he buried, not only was he resurrected, but he is now at the right hand of the Father, ascended to the Father, seated at his right hand, pouring out His Spirit upon the church. And that is exactly the only way you can understand what David said in this particular Psalm, 110. How, how else could you get any other meaning from here? He has ascended into heaven. He's, he is saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Suggests that a king who rules in Jerusalem is the Lord's earthly vice-regent. God rules his people through his chosen representative, his anointed. And he promises to pull down all enemies. And Jesus' discussion of Psalm 110 indicates that a messianic interpretation was already known to the teachers of the law in his day. There's a sense in which David can address his son as my Lord. David's son is his superior, and the messianic kingdom is not simply a renewal of David's earthly dominion. No, it is the enthronement of the Messiah at God's right hand, clearly a transcendent event. Now we come to the climax of the sermon, which is where we are in the sermon, <laughs> which means this. The sermon has reached its con uh, uh, climax and it's given by Peter's address to all Israel again. And he shows that he's concluding his argument here. Pa Peter's audience and the subsequent readers of Acts are to be assured about who Jesus is and how God has vindicated him. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Both Lord, Yahweh, Lord, and Christ, Messiah anointed one. That had to cause some jaws to drop that he would say something quite like that. He is, Jesus has been uniquely exalted to the Father's side and through his heavenly ascension he's poured out the promised spirit and he can be called Lord in the full sense that God is 
And that's who he is. And so he's both Lord and Messiah. Now, what happens after this? Well, calling upon Jesus, as we will see, involves repentance and baptism in his name. The Pentecost sermon is part of a recognition scene where in the manner of a tragedy, people who have acted blindly against their own best interests suddenly come to and recognize their error. And this sermon is actually uh, designed to produce that response here. When the people discovered how stubborn and foolish they had been, they were cut to the heart, meaning they were conscience-stricken or remorseful, and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And their address to the apostles and brothers is an appeal to their common heritage as Israelites. Peter calls them to repent, to repent. And it echoes the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus, who linked repentance with the proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But repentance in act, Acts is normally demanded on the specific basis of what is proclaimed about Jesus Christ. So many things promised in connection with God's rule have already been fulfilled through him, and he is the only exclusive Savior from the coming judgment. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension bring the realization of Old Testament kingdom expectations for Israel and the nations. So first of all, hear me carefully, repentance involves a change of mind about who Jesus is and what his role is in the kingdom. Because metanoia is here. Meta means to change. Noe in the Greek is the word for mind. They are to change their mind about what? About who Jesus is. That he is both Lord and Christ. That is the heart of repentance. Now we try to make it to, oh, you need to feel sorry for what you've done, and there's certain acts. No, a repentance first involves in the mind, a change of mind, because they saw Jesus as what? A man from Nazareth who was a religious con man who was like a thousand other false teachers before him, and they were ready to get rid of him and have him uh, killed, uh, crucified upon the cross. But here, he says, you have to change your mind. And it, it's to be sorry about something for sure, but the Old Testament regularly shows that genuine sorrow for sin involves an alteration of attitude towards God that brings about a conversion or a reorientation of life. And so the New Testament use of the terminology uh, must be interpreted within this theological framework. In Acts 2.38, Repentance means a radical reorientation of life with respect to Jesus, expressing sorrow for having rejected the one accredited by God as both what? Lord and Christ. Powerful, isn't it? Repentance is a human responsibility. Something we are commanded to do, but it is also, at the very same time, a gift of God. Repentance is possible only by God's enabling. The command to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, expresses the positive side of repentance. That is, calling upon Him for salvation, allegiance to Him as Lord and Messiah. Water baptism was offered by John, we know, the Baptist, as a sign of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was preparing Israel for the coming of Messiah and his baptism with the Holy Spirit. He also clearly associated the Messiah's coming with the fulfillment of scriptural promises about a definitive forgiveness of sins at the end of time. When Jesus was raised from death, he declared that forgiveness could be preached in his name to all nations and subsequently poured out the promised Holy Spirit on his disciples. 
But there is a certainty that such forgiveness is a present possibility because of the Messiah's death, resurrection, and ascension. In the apostolic preaching, the offer of forgiveness is linked together with repentance toward God and faith in Jesus as the Christ. Baptism is not always explicitly mentioned in this connection, but it is here and it's being defined in, as being in the name of Jesus Christ. This expression may suggest that the person being baptized actually called upon Jesus and Lord as Lord and Christ as a way of confessing faith in Him. And that the name of Jesus represents His authority and power to grant the blessing of the Spirit and to save people from the coming judgment through the forgiveness of sins. But this baptism is also closely connected with the reception of the Spirit. Now let me say something about this baptismal passage because we're almost at the finish line. Peter urged them to be baptized and it stands to reason that this baptism in this instance followed their repentance and faith. This is due to the precise point in redemptive history in which they now found themselves. Baptism, that is Christian baptism, in contrast to the baptism of John the Baptist, was entirely new. Who was baptized this day? Adults who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Were any children baptized this day? No, they'd already been circumcised. More on that later. But baptism pictured outwardly what was true of those who repented inwardly, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, a picture of the cleansing from sin, a sign and seal of the covenantal purpose of God. Signs and seals have been in existence from the very beginning. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden, a rainbow for the covenant with Noah, circumcision for the covenant with Abraham, the Sabbath for the covenant with Moses, the king's throne for the covenant with David. Baptism then serves as a sign of what God intends in salvation, the washing away of our sins. For Peter, baptism was associated with what occurred to Noah and his family in the flood in 1 Peter 3, 18-21. Peter also cites Psalm 69 in reference to the election of Matthias. These words are found. Save me, O God, for waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I have come deep into the waters. The flood sweeps over me. This messianic psalm and these words together with Jesus' depiction of the cross as a baptism shows us what Calvary meant. Jesus experienced the death ordeal of God's judgment so that we might be rescued. In keeping with this, especially the charge in Acts 1-8 to go to the ends of the earth, the promise extends to all, Gentiles as well as Jews, who call upon the name of the Lord. Peter also traced the rescue for Noah and his family and therefore adds, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, even everyone who calls upon the Lord our God calls to himself. Now listen carefully. In keeping with God's covenant faithfulness through generations, the promise extends to the children also. But the children... But Peter was saying more than that God extends the promise of salvation to children who put their trust in Jesus Christ. It is the children of those who repent that are in view. These children specifically. Such children are in covenant. Something all Jews knew, even those who were convicted, to knew already. Their children had been circumcised because of it. But the same promise now extends in the era of the new covenant as was the case in the era of the old covenant. For this reason, many of us who are faithful to the scriptures urge that the children of those who believe ought to receive the sign of baptism. Baptism is not a sign of faith, but to faith. It beckons those who are baptized to place their trust in Jesus Christ alone. Now, in conclusion, he tells us that 
With many other words, he warned them. Now get this. Everybody thinks, well, that's it for the sermon. That was a pretty short sermon, Pastor Tim. You could read that sermon in less than five minutes. What are you doing still talking? Well, the text here tells us that Peter said many other words. I don't know how long the man talked, but I suspect what we have is a digest of the sermon. We don't have the whole sermon in effect because it says more, much more was said and added. But here on the day of Pentecost, Peter takes an opportune moment to stand up and say, what you are witnessing, what he's saying to these Jews is, what you are witnessing is what your heart has always hoped for and longed for and yearned for and wanted. It just didn't come in the package you expected. But the one who you are hoping to deliver you comes first to deliver you from your sins, comes first to suffer the wrath of God on your behalf, comes first to save you from your sins and to place His Spirit within you and to give you a new heart and to cause you to walk in His statutes. The new covenant is now here. Messiah has come. Messiah will come at the end. And so he's trying to show them this is what I can so identify with Peter because when I'm preaching to people, what they really in their heart of hearts long for and want can still only be found in whom? The Lord Jesus. You know, people are always saying, well, what's wrong with this person? Or what's wrong with this family? Or what's wrong? And we'll sit down and rationalize and start thinking, well, maybe they didn't have the kind of parenting they needed. Or maybe, uh, maybe they were abused as children, and that's why they act like they do now. Or maybe they have mental problems. And all of those things can be true. But what do they ultimately need? What do they need for both time and eternity? They need Jesus. And that's what Peter is saying on the day of Pentecost. What you are witnessing that looks strange to you is the actual fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams for life. We'll say more about it next Sunday. Thank God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Acts. What a glorious book the book of Acts is and how how much truth there is. These messages and these chapters are so dense. And we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. We need to see the big picture. That this Jesus whom the Jews delivered up to be crucified is both the only one worthy of being their Lord and their Messiah. I pray, Lord, you would open our eyes to see and behold that truth for us as well. And that we might cling to him daily is the only one who is our hope. We can look around us and try to hope in what we see and we know we will end up with despair. We can look inside of us and try to find something to hope there and we will only end in despair. But Lord, by your Spirit, may we look at Jesus and Him only. As the Isaiah says, look unto me, all you from the ends of the earth, and be you saved. Lord, save as these words go forth. In Jesus' name, amen.